turned your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Many passages will be placed on the screen today, but our primary passage for this series is from Romans chapter 13. Let's pray. Father God, we are so glad that we can say we love your son. Matter of fact, Lord, the psalmist has encouraged us to kiss the son. And in the spirit of Mary, we bow at the feet of your son. We worship him because he is worthy to be praised and honored as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We kiss him with our praise. We love you, Jesus. And it's only because you loved us first. And it's only because you showed us what love is all about. And we thank you that nothing we can do will ever cause you to stop loving us. You love us when we're right. You love us when we're wrong. You love us when we're up. You love us when we're down. You just love us. And because of that love that covers a multitude of sin, because of that love that casts out fear, we just want to say thank you that we are secure, we are kept, we are safe, and we're seated with you right now in heavenly places. Thank you that no one can snatch us out of the hands of Jesus. Not death, not circumstances, not tribulations, not even Satan himself. So we thank you, Lord. May we live with boldness, a humble boldness because of how loved we are. Forgive us when we try to earn love. Forgive us when we try to earn favor. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to perform and get you to look at us. Forgive us for acting like slaves when we're sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters. Thank you for your love. And now, Lord, I want to show you how much I love you by preaching your word well to your people. Lord, help me do that. My only audience is you, and I thank you that you're already pleased with me. Yet, God, I, I want to honor your word well. Holy Spirit, help me to say the things that will honor Jesus. Lord, you bring the conviction. You bring the clarity. You bring the change. You bring the fruit. For we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Three times the Bible says that you are the apple of my eye. Technically, it's found four times, 
but three of those occasions when apple of one's eye is used, it's used towards Israel. So three times the Bible says of Israel that they are the apple of God's eye. Deuteronomy 32.10, Psalm 17.8, and Zechariah 2.8 says, For he who touches you, speaking of Israel, touches the apple of his eye. So God says, the Bible says that anyone who touches Israel touches the apple of his eye. So you may say, Pastor, what does that figure of speech mean? What is that idiom, uh, apple of one's eye, that's been around since the 1600s, and even Shakespeare used it in his writings? What, what does that term mean? Well, this phrase or this figure of speech refer, refers to the pupil in one's eye. And in ancient times, the pupil, which is the center portion of the eye that is surrounded by the iris, the pupil, that usually that black central circular piece, uh, the ancient world called it an apple because of its round shape. And so the pupil of the eye is the center of the eye, and the pupil or the apple of the eye is essential for sight. And because it's essential for sight and vision, the pupil or the apple is to be greatly cherished. So what God is saying about Israel is that Israel is central to God. Israel, that nation that he began when he called Abraham, is essential to redemption. And we'll see today how God would redeem the world from sin. Israel was central and essential to that program. But specifically, I want you to see today that just like the pupil of the eye that is the center and it's essential, it's also cherished. So God cherishes Israel, listen to this, above all nations. God cherishes Israel above all nations. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love and cherish other nations. But as we'll see today, Israel is cherished above all nations, and whoever touches Israel touches the apple of his eye. Israel is the apple of God's eye and not America. The nation of Israel is the apple of God's eye and not America. Israel is the apple of God's eye and not the church. The church is not the apple of God's eye. The church happens to be the bride of Christ, but we are not the apple of God's eye. That's a distinction that is unique for Israel. And when we replace these terms, these promises and prophecies made exclusively for Israel and we replace them with America or with the church, we have become guilty of committing passive anti-Semitism. Right. We are guilty of replacement theology. Uh -huh. 
And that's the danger of the devotional approach to reading the scriptures exclusively and not having a didactic or a, an approach to study the word in its context when we only look at it as a devotional about what I can get out of it as opposed to looking at it properly within its historical and even gra grammatical context, then we will be quick to claim promises that were made to Israel to ourselves. For instance, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We love to quote that and we should. But God said this first and foremost to Israel. The church can apply it, but we shouldn't steal it. Are y'all going to help me preach today? I don't know if y'all going to help me today. Please go with me on this journey today. We can apply it, but we shouldn't steal it. Deuteronomy 28, 13 says, and the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail. We love to quote this, and we should. But God said this first and foremost to the nation of Israel and not to the church. You see, we can apply it, but we better not steal it. Isaiah 54, 17. Another form of anti-Semitism and replacement theology. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Most of us who quote this don't know where it's at in the Bible. Most of us who quote this don't know the context surrounding why God said this to the nation of Israel in the first place, but we're replacing that promise to ourselves, going around saying no weapon. And yes, that's true. And yes, we can apply it, but first we need to know that God said this first and foremost to the nation of Israel. And like I said, we can apply it, but we better not steal it. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, then will I forgive sin, and then will I heal the United States of America. When God said this, he said it first and foremost to the nation of Israel who happened to be in captivity, a 70-year Babylonian captivity. So he said it first and foremost to Israel. We can claim, or rather we can apply it, but we shouldn't steal it. You see, God spoke to Abram. The Bible calls him the Hebrew. Abram, who would become Abraham, the Hebrew or the Jew, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It's called the Abrahamic covenant and not the USA covenant. And this verse says, God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose Abram, not because of anything good in him, but because God is good. That's why he chose this sinful man, just like he chooses any of us. It's for his glory, and there was a purpose in the choosing of Abram. And God chose Abram, who was married to a woman named Sarah, who they could not have children. But God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
Every time you look up and see the stars, you'll be able to remember my promise that there will be more coming from you than the stars in the heaven. And if you have a bad day and your head is hung down low and you look at the sand, God's promise still is irrevocable. And he says, when you look at the sands, I'm going to bless the people who will come from you. They'll be numerous like the sands on the seashore. And so God is saying to Abram, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and not only you, but every family on the face of the earth. My blessing is going to come from me through you to them. So God is a God of order. And the way he decided for his glory was that he chose Abram, the Hebrew, to start this nation of people through which God would bless the entire earth ultimately and thank God through Jesus Christ, the Jew. Jesus Christ, the Israelite. Jesus Christ, the Hebrew from the tribe of Judah and not from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. This Jesus is who I'm talking about today. Because Romans 9, 4 and 5, Paul said that to Israel was given the promises. To Israel was given the covenants. To Israel was given the oracles or the word of God. To Israel was given the prophets. And to Israel was given the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the blessed God. Amen. The Bible says in Romans 1.16 that salvation comes through the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. So there's an order. Matthew 15.24, Jesus says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, that didn't mean he didn't love Gentiles. Doesn't mean he didn't include Gentiles because he did. But he said, when I came, I came first for the Jews, for the lost sheep of Israel. There's this priority or this order in the kingdom of God. And speaking to a Jewish audience one day, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. He goes on to say how the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said to his Jewish audience, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus says, I have other sheep. So he says to the Jewish sheep, I've come to rescue the sheep of Israel. I am the good shepherd of Israel, but understand Israel, I also have other sheep who are not in this ethnic group. And this coincides, does not contradict Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God says, I'm going to bless all of the families or all of the sheep on the face of the earth through Israel and ultimately through the Messiah. So Jesus wanted the Jews to know that the program that God was working through them was not to be exclusive and only for them, but it was to be inclusive for other people, including Samaritans and those dreaded Europeans whose heel you are under right now as they're occupying Jerusalem. Yeah, them too. I have other sheep from Africa. I have other sheep 
And there's coming a day when there will be one sheepfold or one flock under the one shepherd. That day in Jesus' time wasn't there at that time. And that one sheepfold is not here today. But it's coming. Because Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it's verses 14 through 15, how the cross of Jesus knocked down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he has taken the two and through the cross made them one new man. But that just hasn't been realized yet. Why? As we'll see in a moment, many of the Jews then and even now did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. But there was another nation, another group that did. And just because this group, this new group that had always been planned from Genesis 12 and even from the foundation of the world accepted the Messiah, that doesn't mean God gave up on the first group that rejected him. Oh, you've got to hang with me today. Jesus gave a parable in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. And in this parable, he talks about how there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. And not only did he plant a vineyard, he put a tower in the vineyard. And he put a nice wall around the vineyard. Then he leased his vineyard to other vine dressers, and he went away to a far country. But when vintage season had come, the time for the grapes to come in, harvest time, the owner who was in a far-off country sent workers back to his vineyard in order to collect the harvest. But when the vineyard people who had been leased the vineyard saw these people coming, they beat one, stoned the other, and killed another. And so the owner said, oh, my goodness, let me send more people to my vineyard to collect my grapes. And when those people came who were more than the first, those people who at least the vineyard, Jesus says in the story, killed those people too. And so I want to read for you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 40, to conclude this story of the vineyard. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, oh, oh, let me back up, let me back up. I missed a key point. Because after the first two groups got rejected and even killed by the people who leased the vineyard, the owner said, I'm going to send my son. I almost forgot the most important part. And uh, uh, they're going to accept my son. They're going to respect my son. Well, the Bible says when the son came, they killed the son as well. So Jesus says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. 
Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they, because they took him for a prophet. And so Jesus says that there's another group of people that we're going to give the kingdom to. The kingdom will go on. And if Israel rejects her responsibility to carry on God's kingdom program in the earth, then God will hand it to another group of people who will receive the kingdom and carry it on. Israel and the church, and by the way, that kingdom who receives the king, or that, or that, that group of people that receives the kingdom happens to be a Gentile church, the other sheep. So Israel and the church are not the same but they are on the same team serving the same God. Again, don't throw a stone at me if you come from a different place of theology as it pertains to Israel, eschatology, and all of that. This is Strong Tower Bible Church, so hopefully you can follow me in Scripture. Again, I'm not trying to say that you're wrong. I'm not trying to say that I'm right, but let's let these Scriptures speak for themselves. Israel and the church are not the same, but they are on the same team serving the same God. You see, on God's team, Israel is the first team, and the church is the second team. So for those who play volleyball or softball, baseball, football, basketball, if you have a large team, normally you're going to have a first team, second team. First string, second string, and then there's the bench where some people just never got in, and we're going <laughs> to pray for them in the Lord. But be being on the bench builds your character. Builds your character. The second team, which is the church, I'm here to let you know, is on the field right now. The first team is off the field of redemption as far as the gospel spreading to the earth. So the second team, the church, we're on the field now. When I was uh, in high school, I'm glad uh, Brother Bernard is not in here because uh, he thinks no one played football but him. And so uh, when I tell him about my stellar career, he always has snide remarks to make. <laughs> but believe it or not, and, I, and, I, and I'm supporting the brother this morning, and I'll tell you, that, that's love right there. Wearing the brother's shirt, even though he puts me down. Love your enemies. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I started. On offense and defense my senior year. Oh, yeah, I was on start. I was a running back and a cornerback. Offense and defense hardly ever got off the field. But one day in practice, the first team defensive unit was messing around. We weren't running hard. We weren't finishing plays. We were being lazy, uh, lackadaisical. And our coach, John Buckheister, started yelling at the first team defense and said, if you don't get your act together, the second team will start on Friday. Now, we didn't play at night because we didn't have lights at my school. We played, you know, at 3 o'clock. He said that if your first team keeps messing up, the second team will replace. And guess what? We didn't think he would do it. We just kept on. We had a couple of wins, so we were prideful. We were reading the newspaper and stuff, believing the press clippings. And so the coach said, okay, y'all still tripping? Second team, y'all are up, and you will start the game on Friday. I tell you what, we never tripped again in practice when that happened. Israel was the first team. They were tripping out through unbelief. 
God warned them. God warned them. They still did not heed the warnings of God. So God says, I'm going to put you to the side, and I'm going to grab the eager second team who just can't wait to get on the field. And so we are on the field right now. And so because we're on the field, we have a responsibility to carry the kingdom until the first team gets ready. And God will call the first team back on the field after he takes the first team, not only off the field, but up in the air. We'll talk about that next week. And then he'll focus his attention on the first team, and he will use tribulation to get them ready to accept their king whom they rejected. He will use tribulation to get them to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, you got to be here next week too. There are several signs to look for in understanding biblical prophecy and knowing the times or the seasons that we're in. You see, there are signs in nature. Jesus said, when you see these signs happening, just like a woman in labor, that when she's about to deliver, the signs become more rapid and more intense. Jesus said, when you see these things happening, you will know that the time is close for his delivery or his arrival. Yes, it has happened throughout all the century. The first century church thought he was coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. We are not date setting like the person, I almost called him a fool, but I won't call him a fool, but the person who set the date that yesterday was supposed to be the end of the world. No, this is not about date setting. This is about season watching. I'm in a season right now, and I am expecting, I'm looking for Jesus to come because this is not my home here. And so there are signs of nature. There will be earthquakes and hurricanes, Jesus said. In the last two weeks, we've had Harvey, Irma, and Maria Places in the Caribbean are now totally uninhabitable because these hurricanes have brought people to their knees. And God is using all of that so that we can look to him once we see how limited and finite we are and how powerful he is. We repent and we say, oh, God, have mercy on us. But some will shake their fist at God and say, if you loved us, why are you letting this happen? God is saying, because I love you, I'm letting this happen so I can give you one more chance to repent of your sins. There are signs in society. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be moral perversions everywhere. The age will be known by loveless people. Then there will be signs in religion. Jesus said there will be false Christs coming out here that if possible, they'll deceive elect folks because they'll be so deceitful and successful in their deception. And then there will be signs even in the church. There'll be great compromise in the church in the last days. There'll be a falling away of the church in the last days. There'll be persecution of the church in the last days. And as we learned last week, there are signs in technology. Because Daniel 12, 4, that in the latter days, there will be an increase in knowledge. And with the computer and the microchip and the satellite, Man has increased his knowledge almost so where he doesn't feel he needs God because he thinks he knows as much as God. And so people are receiving implants right now in their hand in preparation for what Revelation 13 talks about, the mark of the beast. But the best way, with my time remaining, to interpret biblical prophecy about the end times 
is to look at what God has done with Israel and what God is going to do with Israel. So hang with me. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And Paul says, and do this. We know he's saying, and love each other. Love one another. Do this, love one another. Why? Knowing the time. Kairos, the season that we're in, that now, let the church say now. now. It is high time to awake out of sleep for now. Let the church say now. now. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're one day closer to the return of Jesus, and that's all right with me. Let the government be on his shoulder. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you do not come, let me occupy until you come. Let me live for you until you come. But don't get it twisted. I'm not setting my affections on things below, but I'm setting my mind on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So I got to know the time. So today's message is entitled, It's Time to Know the Time, Part 2. The six fulfilled signs of Israel. Here we go. I'm getting on the bike and I'm pumping. Here we go. Sign number one, the destruction of the Jewish temple. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. Jesus told the disciples, go ahead and look at that temple. This temple that you've almost idolized above worshiping God. Because y'all think that the temple... Uh, uh, excuse me, the temple is great or that even the gold in the temple is great, but it's not the temple or the gold that's great. It's the God who makes the temple and the gold great and you're missing him. And so Jesus says, I tell you what, not one stone will be left here. It will all be burned down and broken down. So that prophecy that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans burned down the temple and broke down the walls again of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 19 through 22, uh, God says this to Solomon at the dedication of this temple, Solomon's temple, in all of its glory. God said back in the Old Testament, he says, um, I'll inhabit this place. My glory will reside here. But the day you forget me, the day you make this about buildings and not about me, the day you make this about religion and not about relationship, because religion kills, relationship with God gives life. The day you turn from me, I will lift my hands off this temple, I will lift my hands off this city, and I will leave you to destruction. And so that occurred. Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed, and it happened. Secondly, the scattering of the Jews from Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 64 and 65. When God is giving the blessings and the curses to Israel right before they go into the promised land. He's telling them how they're going to be blessed and how they're going to be cursed. And God told them that if you obey me and if you keep my commandments, I will keep you in this land that I have given to your ancestors. But if you disobey me and if you turn from me and start doing your own thing and worshiping other gods, small g, then I am going to scatter you throughout the world. And that happened. Not only when Babylon came in 586 B.C., 
but it also occurred because the Jews were scattered and taken into captivity, set, set free by Cyrus, who was the Persian king, and they came back home, three deportations, where they came back and they were able to get the law, they were able to rebuild the temple, but it surely didn't look like Solomon's temple. And then Nehemiah came thirdly to rebuild the walls, but they didn't have that prominence like they once had because they were still under the heel of the Greeks and the Romans. And so there would be a second time where they would be scattered because of their disobedience. And the Bible says that in Deuteronomy 28, that they would be scattered again. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that because of the persecution surrounding the stoning of Stephen, the Jews were scattered. They left Jerusalem, and it intensified when the apostle James was killed. The Jews went out. We see that in chapter 11, verse 19, and even in 18, verse 2. While in Rome, Claudius said, the Jews who ran here, y'all got to get out of here now. So the Jews are scattering all over the place and God says, because you disobeyed me, your eyes will be failing. You'll be a nervous wreck. You will be uprooted from the land. So why did God scatter Israel? He scattered them because they disobeyed him and turned from him. And the ultimate proof that they turned from God is that with the help of the Romans, they killed God's son. Proof that they had scattered from him spiritually. Well, if God punished his people, Israel, who are the apple of his eye, and God punished other nations in the Bible, why do we think God would not punish America? Are you still listening? Are you still tuned into the Strong Tower Bible Church channel? Why do we think that God won't punish America or discipline the church if he spanked Israel over and over again? Now, we like replacement theology when it comes to them promises and those blessings. But we don't like replacement theology when it comes to them whoopings and those captivities. No, that, no that's for Israel. Oh, now, oh, now you want to be biblical now. It's a sad day when the President of the United States seeks to objectify and demoralize black American citizens for peacefully exercising their First Amendment rights to protest injustice. It's a sad day. But I believe God is being merciful right now at this crucial moment to give our country yet another opportunity to admit, confess, Repent of, turn from, and begin repairing lasting damages done by America's original sin called racism. I believe right now we have another opportunity because God is merciful, you know, for, for repentance to occur and for healing to take place in our country. It will take brokenness and humility from all of us, especially from the white majority. Yes, 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 yes. You see, we have a president who regularly speaks incendiary, divisive comments that have strong racist overtones. But it's not the foul and egregious words of the president that trouble me the most. It's the lack of words, that is the lack of words of correction 
coming from his evangelical base that I find more troubling. Paula White, you're supposed to be his pastor. Now, if I heard one of the members of this church on national TV using foul language and they asked me to help hold them accountable, you best believe I'm going to come to them in love and say, you could have used some better words besides SOB. Matter of fact, let's not just talk about the words. Let's talk about your temperament and your attitude that you seem to have against anyone that challenges you. You are a disciple of Jesus, right? You say you profess Christ, even though you don't see a need to take communion. But, but, but because you say you're under his authority, even though you seem to be under nobody else's authority around here in this checks and balance system. Oh, if I was his pastor. But anyway, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For the time, Kairos, has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? The church does not, excuse me, uh, we need to self-examine ourselves right now. It's not what the world is doing. It's what the church is not doing. We need to look at ourselves and see how we dropped the ball when God gave us the ball of the kingdom, how we made it more about race and politics and America than we made it about God, Jesus, and the kingdom. We need to take self-examination. Because if we don't judge ourselves, God will judge us. God will judge us, and maybe he is right now. I'm not a prophet, but I do believe and know that God is merciful, and when we turn back to him, he has mercy on his people. Then there is the regathering of the Jews back to Israel. Isaiah 11, 10, uh, 11 and 12. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10, 11, and 12. So God says, I'm going to scatter you, but because I'm merciful, I'm going to bring you back. And yes, he brought them back after the Babylonian captivity. They were dispersed again. And in Isaiah, it says, I'll bring you back the second time. The second time that God brought them back was after World War II. God brought them back. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, can a nation be born in a day with God and Israel? Yes, it was. Because now we have, number four, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 through 8. Do we have that scripture? Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Verse 8. Who has heard? Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Who's heard of a nation being born in a day? Well, this miracle occurred on May 14, 1948. This is when Israel became a nation again, recognized by the United Nations. Because up until that point, they were scattered people. They were all over the place. World War I occurred, and it prepared the land for the people because it came under British control from the Turks. 
But then World War II prepared the people for the land to go back because after Hitler had killed six million Jewish people, they said, that's not going to happen to us again. We're going to galvanize. We're going to come together. We're going back home. So when they went back home, they had the sympathy of many of the nations, including the United States, and they were made a nation again on May 14th, 1948. And the reestablishment of Israel, listen to this, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation is the primary prophetic event of our age. This is a miracle. This is a fulfillment of prophetic scripture. And then during the Six-Day War in June of 1967, much of Jerusalem was reoccupied by the Jews. Now, through these various peace treaties from people coming in from the outside trying to help give peace between the Jews and the Palestinians or the Arabs. They keep giving away land in hopes of trying to get peace, uh, but they're back in the land. And that's why we can take pilgrimages to Israel and, and view the land and go and tour the, the holy city because they got the city back. They got their national status back. But then fifth, there's the prophetic word of the resurgence of Israel because once in the land, God made a promise that the country would bloom again. Isaiah 35, 1 through 7. One of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth is Israel. Zephaniah 3, 9 foretells of the restoration of the Hebrew language because through all of their uh, dispersions, they lost their language. But it was prophesied they would get their Hebrew language back, and they did. Zechariah also foretold the return of Israel's military strength. You thought they were tough under David. God says, when I bring y'all back, uh, put up Zechariah chapter uh, 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 12, verse 6. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. One of the strongest armies in the world happens to be the Israelite army. They're small in number, but they're mighty because God is with them. And even though they're surrounded by many nations who wish to drive them back into the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, they're not going anywhere because God says, once I bring you back into the land, you're not going to be uprooted again. You're going to stay there because when my son comes back, he's coming back to Jerusalem to rescue the Jewish people who are under persecution. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. So you're not leaving that land ever again. So therefore, I got to make your military strong because you're surrounded by millions of people who have a different religion and who also hate the Jewish people and think that that land was deeded to them as opposed to deeded to the descendants of Abraham. Then they start fighting over the sons. Is it Isaac or is it Ishmael? Ishmael leads to the Arabs and the Muslims. But Isaac leads to the Jewish people. I don't know what CNBC says or CNN says. Or I don't know what these different nations say, but the Bible says it's in Isaac that the seed is called. It's in Isaac, not in Ishmael. We love Ishmael. God has a plan for Ishmael. He's blessed Ishmael, but that land belongs to God's people, Israel. And then finally, Israel will be the focal point of the world in the last days. Israel, not America, will be the focal point of the world in the last days. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. 
And it shall happen in that day when I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So for some reason, all the nations of the world are going to converge for Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo. For some reason, all the nations of the world will come against Jerusalem in the last days. They will be the focal point, and God will use oil in the region to make the world dependent upon that part of the world. And in order to get oil, some nations will ally with countries who are against Israel in order to get oil. So God is going to use oil to bring the world right there to Israel. But I want you to know in conclusion, 1 Chronicles 12, 32 says the best way for us to understand the times is to know the times that we live in. The sons of Issachar understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. Do we understand the times? It's just not enough to understand what's going on with sports. It's just not enough to understand what's going on with the stock market. Do we understand the times in which we live in? Because God is dropping signs. We saw six fulfilled signs for Israel. The destruction of their temple, their scattering around the world, God regathering them, him reestablishing them as a nation and restoring their capital city back to them. We see their resurgence and also them being the focal point in the world in the last days. Well, if the Lord allows, next week we're going to look at the three yet-to-be-fulfilled signs of Israel. Remember, they're the key to understanding prophecy, not the church, not America, Israel, the Jews. So next week we're going to look at the tribulation of the Jews, the salvation of the Jews, and the primacy of the Jews. Oh, deacon, come on up here and close us in prayer. Amen. Amen.